The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, we listen to Sophie tell us her story. Sophie, now almost two years clean, takes us through 16 years of drug and alcohol abuse. She started out at the age of 13 smoking pot and graduated to alcohol, Xanax, ecstasy, and cocaine by the age of 19. That same year, her boyfriend dies of cancer and Sophie spirals out of control, arrested multiple times, rehab and bankruptcy, until her journey into recovery saves her life. It's a real-life Hollywood story. Don't miss this episode. Hey, Sophie, how's it going? Hey, all. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Sophie. So glad you could join us today. But before we jump into your story... Let's talk a little bit about what your life is like today, including recovery. Take it away. Well, actually, I shower, I go to work, I do my meeting a couple times a week. I definitely, definitely, definitely try to talk to friends from the meetings all the time. That's something that helps me, and I've also incorporated it into my daily routine. But I'd have to say, compared to the past, I have a pretty normal life. That's great, Sophie. Now, what about hobbies? What hobbies you got? I like to paint and I like to write. You know, those were always my hobbies, but it's just been a little bit harder getting into it because before I used to think that I had to be high to do it. So how many meetings a week roughly do you hit? Now I do two meetings a week. I'm here in Costa Rica, so I like to go to the English meetings and sometimes distance is an issue. Uh, How much clean time do you have now? Now I have a year and a half clean time. Actually, I'll have two years in December. So how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how it made you feel? First time, I remember it very clearly. I was 13 and I smoked pot with a a friend that found their dad's pot. Oh, my dad, he got some pot. Let's do it. And we did it. I don't even know how we rolled that joint. We were all 13 years old. But I never touched it again until I was 16. And then it just went downhill from there. I mean, it wasn't pot. It was pot, ecstasy, Xanax, drinking. (laughs) I mean, it was just ridiculous. Okay, so now it's time for me to turn the show over to you, Sophie, and segue into your story. The battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally, your journey in recovery up until today. So, Sophie, please take it away. All right. Well, like I said earlier, my story starts as as an adolescent trying to figure things out. But I think now looking back, started with very hardcore drugs from the beginning. I was 16 and spring break, ecstasy, parties. I mean, I was doing it all the time. On top of that, on top of all the parties, the thing was that I was battling, I guess, depression as a kid, feeling weird, not fitting in. A lot of those things, now looking back, I see fueled that addiction. And it fueled it to the point where I felt when I got high that I was untouchable, that everybody wanted to be my friend. I was Popular. That went on for several years. Then, you know, around the age of 19, I remember I found a boyfriend and I fell in love. 
I, I did find cocaine at this point before it was just other drugs and partying and this and that. I now elevated it to cocaine. I had this boyfriend. Everything was great. But uh, So wait, 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 wait. So you were, this is what, 19? I was 19. Already did all the drugs I just named and now I'm adding cocaine to it. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was definitely an addict from the beginning. I could never just do little bits. I mean, I was a hardcore drug user at a very young age. You know, I got a lot of notches on the belt. But I, I think what always messed me up when I was getting high, or the reason why I wanted to get high was avoiding feelings too. I mean, you know, like I was saying, I had a boyfriend, we were together several years. Unfortunately, life happened and he passed away. What? Yes, he passed away. Oh, shit. So, uh, sorry. That to me was, at the time, I felt like my addiction was still like just in the party phase. You know, I still had my job and all these things. And but wait, 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 wait. Uh, the, you were 19, was, got the boyfriend. Right, a couple years go by. Did he party? Huh? Yes. Did he party too? Party. So, so, how did he pass away? He actually passed away with cancer. Okay. All separate. Right. This is. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's dramatic. I don't. Yeah. It's it's something that a, a young person is a lot to deal with. Right. You know, because you're already dealing with all that craziness that you were feeling before, and then you add adult shit to it, which is watching all the the stages, the chemo, and all that stuff. And I was trying to be the good one. I didn't leave his side. You know, I was there. Actually, I calmed it on the drug for for a little while. And then he passes, and then all hell broke loose. You got a young kid who's pissed off now at the world, because I was already pissed off before. And I remember getting arrested two weeks two weeks after he passed. I, I got arrested for cocaine possession. Oof. Yep, had the mug shot, the parents having to pick me up from jail, my mom freaking out. Because besides all this, I do have a good family. We're all screwed up. Everybody's got issues in my family. I think that's why I handle things the way I do. But at the end of the day, they do love me. So we go, I went through all that, the probation, peeing in a cup, all the stupid classes they make you go through. But it didn't, I, w I had no problem at that point. I just thought that the world was against me. Now the government wants my money, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I just, I, I, I flip out. And I start getting on cocaine really bad. I mean, spending probably 500 bucks easy in one night. And what did 500 bucks? Where are you getting 500 bucks? What didn't help me is that at the time, I actually had a really good job. I worked for a mortgage company. I started as a receptionist right out of high school. I yep. bought my own house and everything at 22. I mean, like, I had, I would, I, if I wouldn't have had drugs in my way, I probably would be some huge person driving around in a BMW right now, but that's not. Be like you'd be like Barbara Corcoran. <laughs> I'm better than that. <laughs> because that's one thing I do notice is that I did have a lot of drive. You know, I had a lot of ability, but for some reason, I didn't give myself enough credit. I just wanted to be in the party. I just wanted to do all that stuff and not have to deal with responsibility or with life or with accepting, you know what, so you are, 
this and you are that, so get over it. You know, stop fucking feeling sorry for yourself all the time. Stop playing victim. But again, you know, I went through probably about 16 years of solid hardcore using, and I'm only 31 right now. So that's half your much, life. like half of my life. Yeah. After my boyfriend passed and I spent those several years getting high, I got the bright idea that painkillers. See, now I'm adding more to the pot. You know, I already had a long list, but I'm like, you know what? Painkillers, it's not cocaine. That's not bad. I mean, I had, I've had several surgeries, so I mean, it's not like I don't need it. So then the painkillers came into play. I definitely stopped using the cocaine. That was done, you know, and all that, but I started on the painkillers. When did you get the surgeries? Um, I had surgery when I was 15. I had scoliosis. So I had spine surgery, which, again, was something a young child, you know, having to deal with a major surgery right. you know, and, and all that that goes with it, having a bad back and stuff. But like I said, I didn't feel like a normal kid. I had a lot of shit on my plate and a lot of emotional now, baggage. Now, when you had the surgeries, did they give you painkillers for that? Not at the time. I was a young kid, and they didn't want to prescribe those type of pills to kids. And at the time, I wasn't a drug addict, so I, didn't, I, I dealt with it fine. Okay, okay. Well, I, so I it, was it, it, an it, addict, it, but I wasn't using. <laughs> okay, I got you, I got you. So I move on to painkillers. But unfortunately, when I started painkillers, I guess now it's like the thing to do. We're talking like seven, eight, or you know, about seven years ago. At least in my area, it wasn't that popular. And then you know, I got addicted to it. But it's not like the other drugs. You can get stoned, or you can do coke, and you can go to bed to wake up, and you know, maybe emotionally you're you're fucked up, but physically you're fine. But those pills really took a beating on my body. I, what kind of pain pills? Uh, oxycodone, oxycodone. Oh, shit. And I took the the oxycodone, for those that know about it, I didn't like Vicodin or none of that shit. Just give me that one with oxycodone. You know, I was, <laughs> I was fucking, I need hardcore <laughs> shit, man. Fuck the little shit. And that's something I think I realize now. Man, I could just never do anything like a little bit of pot or a little... That was not me. It, it, I had to go all the way and then past what everybody else was doing. You know, you know shit's bad when the drug addicts around you use you as what they don't want to be like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I've been there. We're not as bad as, as Sophie, you know, and I'm <laughs> like, shut up, asshole. You just don't want to seem as like a fucking drug addict. You're one. I'm one. But so, you know, I get addicted to the painkillers and I'd wake up in cold sweats. I'd go into withdrawals. And again, like I said, I've, I've been using drugs since, you know, I was 16, 15, hardcore, start going there. And I haven't developed the brain. I haven't developed social skills. I haven't developed coping skills or any type of skill. And then I just added another fucking drug that took over and this one took even took over more than than I thought it would you know eventually I did end up losing a job I stopped working my house went into foreclosure family moved away from me because they didn't want to see me I didn't even know one day I, I my neighbor tells me me and my mom we lived on the same street 
And my neighbor goes, oh, I see your mom moved. Where'd she go? And I was like, what? Yeah, she moved. And I go to my house, and this is the house I grew up in. And I look through the window, and I felt like I was in a movie. Like, when you watch that movie, you're like, oh, that poor kid. You know, and I'm looking through the window, and my house, my parents' house is empty. They moved out, like, so quickly that I didn't even know, or I was just too high to notice. And they were gone. I lost my family. I was In my mind, I was alone in my house, getting high. And at this point, again, I add another notch to my belt. I start shooting up. You know, I start using needles for the oxycodone. Oh. So, I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So after I'm a complete fucking mess, crack-headed out, Looking, I, I weighed 95 pounds. I'm only 5'2". You know, I lost all my job. I mean, just lost everything. And I had a roommate. She was an escort because that's how I made money. She could escort from my house. Then I would make money. Like, it was just always about waking up, get money, to get high. To Like, it was just in this cycle because of that withdrawal from the coding pills. It's a motherfucker. That thing... I mean, it literally, I, now looking back on it clean and sober, that thing is like the devil and it, it sits on your fucking shoulders and just holds you down or like someone's drowning. But at the time, I, in my mind, that's all I wanted. I had, that's all I wanted. I wanted to wake up and get high, go to stay high during the day, you know, because I had to get high like every couple of hours or I'd start withdrawing because I don't up my dosage so much. And how old were you at this time, uh, by this, this point? At this point, you... I'm 25. Okay, so this from night, started, so we're talking six I years. I shooting up officially, I guess you could say, by the time I was 25. Wow. And yeah. you, now, you had bought your own house at 22? Exactly. Now, you said your parents, like, moved out of their house? Yeah, the house I bought was on uh -huh. the same street as my parents. Uh, I have a okay. very close family. We all live close. You know, my sisters, we all live in the same zip code. You know, I have two older sisters as well who avoided me at all costs and wouldn't bring their kids around me because I was wow. dangerous. Which makes you feel like shit, you know, and which doesn't help when your family tells you, no, you can't be around my kids. And I didn't think of myself as, like, a bad person. Like, if you were my drug dealer or some friend of mine, yeah, you'd get fucked over in a second. I mean, at least street rules. You know, I'm talking about street rules. But I never messed with my family. I could never understand why they didn't care. You know, like, I'm like, okay, yes, I'm a drug addict, but I'm not going to hurt you. But obviously, that's crazy thinking. <laughs> you're using drugs. You're not getting around my kids. If I had any right now, I would have did the same thing they did. So that was really hard. And I think, too, what my downfall, I may sound stupid now after saying all those other drugs, but, man, when I started actually using the needle, that, I think, was the, it no longer became, I could no longer hide from society. You know, I, I, I could maybe, maybe my family knew and some friends knew, you know, but I was still able to go out. I was still, you know, I would still go to the club. Uh, driving my like I, I played it off better but when I started shooting up that's when I lost definitely wasn't working I was a hermit crab in my house I didn't leave my house at all unless I was going to get drugs my arms right. which I still to this day you know I still have the scars from from the needle marks that I use that I that I have 
Right. I mean, I was. I remember I was at a Seven Eleven using my food stamp card because, of course, I did have a food stamp card. <laughs> I didn't collect any money or anything like that, but I needed some food to eat because I had no job. I was stealing electric. I was stealing water. I mean, it was it was bad. Okay, there's no way to sugarcoat all this shit, you know. And I'm at Seven Eleven, and this guy comes up and hands me a flyer, and I don't even look at it. And then I get in my car, and because that thing barely ran, but the Seven Eleven was two blocks down the street, so it'd make it there. And I get in my car, and it was a church. They, I guess, they picked up drug addicts off the street to to bring them to their church, you know. And I'm like, holy shit! I was embarrassed, even though I was high. I was embarrassed because <laughs> it was like somebody confirming that I look like a crazy person in the street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that was a you know confirmation, girl. You look like a fucking crackhead. Please come to our church because we are going to help you. I will say this: I I did um, around this time when I started using needles. Uh, actually, but let me backtrack. Before my family kind of dipped, I did spend one week in a hospital. You know, I guess it was rehab. So I went to the rehab. I was on painkillers. I wasn't shooting up went to this rehab and then afterwards they said well maybe you shouldn't go home so I was like all right fine you know I'm gonna they're like let's go to a halfway house so my family found a halfway house for me and talk about feeling like shit too you know I mean I'm like holy crap I just spent a week in rehab and I'm living in a halfway house like I'm a loser like (laughs) I'm a loser and so I meet this guy in the halfway house (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally manipulated like I can totally manipulate him because that's another thing I was fucking smart with my words I could pretty much manipulate for a very long time and he starts telling me about how he, he, he his thing was pills too but that he would shoot up and most people after you've been to rehab and you're living in a halfway house I get the bright idea that I'm going to ask him to show me how to do it because I want to see for myself what all these people and these meetings and all this shit was talking about. Well, that was a stupid idea. <laughs> that was There's nothing like a rehab or halfway house love connection. Yes. Well, it wasn't a love connection because I was just using the poor guy. <laughs> what I wanted. I was about me and what I wanted. And I was too busy living this thug life, this. I'm going to fuck you up, and I'm cool, and I'm a drug addict, and I can get you this. And I That's another thing, too, is that I say all these stories, but in the meantime, I'm presenting myself to people like a badass. Because in order to get the drugs that I wanted, and the amount that I wanted, at the price that I wanted, I had to deal with higher, I guess you could say higher up people. I didn't want a middleman. Don't waste my freaking time. I just want to go to the main guy pay money, and then if I'm a constant customer, I expect some discounts. And I actually did get pretty far with a lot of badass people. And being a girl in that type of environment, say, since I already felt so shitty about myself with the normal life, on the drug side life, I actually felt like I had a status, you know, or, you know, I had a place because I'm this badass chick who will fuck you up. I can do this, and I can do that, and I can do more drugs than you. You know, I mean, oh, you're smoking weed? Please. I'll smoke, like, five blunts, 
do some coke and then shoot up some pills. Like, get out of my way. And I actually thought that that was cool. Or that I thought, I thought that, yeah, that I was cool and that I was a badass. And I'm like one of these pretty, pretty street girls. But again, that was a bad idea too. Because you lie to yourself and you lie to yourself and you lie to yourself. And you, and, and it was to go from a kid to by the time I'm 25, I've already done more drugs than anybody in this planet. At least that's what I thought. And I think of it now, that's a short period of time. I remember this poor kid, man, this, this rich kid. He used to come to my house, brand new BMW, and he'd always come to me for pills, you know, because I had the white friends. They would come to me. They trusted me, you know, but I was still the girl on the other side of the tracks that could help him out. You know, one day I had no money. I, I ended up robbing the guy for like fucking 300 bucks. <laughs> and, and then like the next day he calls my friend up. Oh, Sophie robbed me. And I was oh. there. So I'm like, dude. Get up, did it like like oh I robbed them the next day for like another three hundred bucks, you know? No. Like I mean, but that was what I had to do though every day in order to support my expensive drug habit. I mean, you have an expensive habit sitting at home, nobody's just gonna bring it to you. You know, I mean, yeah. even the drug dealers, they'll help you out, but at the at the same time you have to give them money. And that's also the stuff that makes you like it starts to take away your humanity. You start to turn the humanity off and the drug addict goes on. You know, whatever it had to do. Oh, I'm going to fuck this person up or, or you know what, I'm going to buy them and then sell them extra expensive. And, but it was like a cycle every day. Waking up in the morning, no money. Then you have to figure out how to get high. And it's just a cycle, a cycle. And then when you're shooting up, that cycle is pretty quickly because after three hours, you're ready to, to, to get another, you know, another buzz going on or you're going to start withdrawing pretty soon. So needless to say, man, that was pretty much the heavy part of the drug use. You know, that was that was pretty bad. That was pretty bad. So I had uh, at this point, I got it. I lost everything, stealing electric, house and foreclosure, but I still lived there. You know, I wasn't going to let them take me out. <laughs> Fuck that. Wait till I get my 30-day notice. The economy's bad. Shit, my house's still in foreclosure, man. They still haven't taken it. Sometimes I look back, I'm like, damn it, I could have fucking went another, like, three years. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Like, my house right now still has not been taken by the bank. It's been in foreclosure for, like, seven years. Yeah, well, there's a crackhead living in it somewhere. <laughs> no, actually, I have a family member staying there, so thank God. Okay. So I, I get in this, so I get this crazy escort chick to live with me. Okay. She made my life a little bit easier, at least in my mind, because she's helping me get money quicker. Yes, paying the bills. Hell yeah. So, but she started. I remember, and this may sound no, it's not gonna sound crazy to you guys, but I she meets up with this mess guy. Right, brings him to the house. I even tried that. Uh, thank God for some fucking reason, I was so into my pills. I just didn't get into that whole thing. That must have been like one of the higher powers working before I realized I I had a higher power. But me and this chick, we get in this huge fucking fight because this guy just gave me the creepy vibes, you know. Right. And so she left. 
He was a fucking meth head. He fucking cooked it himself. So yeah. So even in my psychoticness, I'm like, dude, this is this is bad. So she left. She got she left. And I really at that point in my life, I felt panicked because I didn't want to quit doing drugs, but I was I was tired of the runarounds that I had to do to get money to get the drugs. That was wearing me down. Like I said, the humanity switch was flipped off and I did a lot of mean things. A lot of people I robbed and stores that I stole from, you know, there's a grocery store in Florida called Publix. Man, I used to hit them up like crazy. It's ridiculous. The 7-Eleven, they didn't even like me coming in there. They see me coming and they're like, we need to follow this bitch around the store. You know, I mean, it was just fucking, the pawn shop quit letting me go there. Like, one time I go to the pawn shop, and they're like, no, you can't come here no more. You know, oh. so that pawned everything, like, everything, all the jewelry I had. I even had a yard sale once in my house where I practically sold everything in my house that would fucking sell. So I was tired of, the the, the getting of the money is also another job. I mean, like, that, just doing drugs, that on its own is very demanding on, on, on you, you know, and demoralizing, you know, but honestly, I didn't care. So I had my, my dad come to my house out of the blue. I did get him for 60 bucks that day, I will say that, and in my life, that was, that was a win day. But, <laughs> but I remember him telling me, why don't you come to Costa Rica with I'm like, no. You guys are going to stick me in another fucking rehab and da-da-da-da and da-da-da. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Just come with me to get away, you know. And I thought about it for a day. And I, like I said, I had, I was tired. You know, I think at this point I, I had a very crazy life already at 26 at this point now. And I said, okay, all right, fine, whatever, I'll go with you. I remember stealing methadone from this chick to take with me on the trip because I knew I had to have my pills, my drugs. I even came, went through all, you know, like the airport security and all that shit with fucking like 30 fucking methadone pills. Get out of here. Yeah, and I have already a record because I had already gotten arrested for cocaine. So they always check my shit. And, um, but I come and I finish my pills in like, I don't know, like eight days. And I was supposed to be there for like a month. I was like, I was calling my mom. I want to go back now. Fuck this shit. I got real rebellious because I'm withdrawing. And I'm in Costa Rica, away from anybody I, I could possibly know how to steal, where to get. You know, I, I was like not in a good spot. So my dad gets this, there, uh, she's a psychiatrist, a friend of the family comes. She goes, I'll give you a prescription for methadone but you need to get yourself into some type of treatment. I'm, and I'm only doing this as a favor to your family because I don't think it's going to make a fucking difference. You know, well, she didn't say fucking, that's how I'm saying. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, that's what it felt like she was saying at the time. Of course. You know, and so she gets me the pills. Somehow, like, you know, besides, my whole family was really worried about me. They already had plans for me to go to rehab when I got here, but I guess they were treading lightly with me because I was actually very aggressive. I mean, like any of us drug addicts, whenever we feel like somebody is in our way, we're, we're going to get nasty. And I was easy at getting nasty. So they're like, well, we want you to meet with this lady. 
this lady, her name's Sylvia. It's like, well, she has a rehab here in Sabanilla. And I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. I mean, I was feeling pretty defeated at this point anyways on life. Pretty upset and, you know, I kind of knew that something had to give. I knew either I was going to die or I was going to die. Jails and the institution, institutions already happened. So I go to the rehab and I kind of walk around and I see all these people there, you know, and it's a Spanish rehab, you know, and that's cool, but my main thing is English. You know, well, let me backtrack. So I said, okay, I'm going to go. Fine, fine. But you got to give me my methadone. Y'all aren't going to stick me. And that, the whole time, that's all I was worried about. Was those right, things. of course. I'm like, dude, I'll go. But you guys got to taper me off. Because I was already telling them the dosages that I need and how they need to give it to me and that I know my body. And, you know, I was doctoring myself. And they're like, yeah, yeah, bitch, just come in here and shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I did it, and surprisingly, I was off of the methadone and all the pills in 45 days, which is pretty good considering how crazy I was before. You know, I remember doing an exercise in rehab where, and where they're like, "Okay, you're gonna write down all the types of drugs that you've done, and this and that." And I'm like. All right, here we go. These were all the crazies are going to come out. Because I walk into the rehab and my arms are so beat up from the needles that, like, they're black. Like, my veins and, like, it was bad because I looked really bad, you know. And, and And I just wanted to hear somebody else say how bad they were. It didn't happen that way. I said my story, or I wrote down all the different types of drugs, and we're talking double digits from the Xanax to the Vicodin to the Coke to the X to the Adderall to the alcohol to the weed and all the other friends that go with those same hardcore drugs. But, you know, there's off-brands and all that craziness. That made me feel really shitty. I spent six months in that fucking rehab. There was no 90 days. For me, it was it was it was six months that I needed to be in the rehab. I definitely think I went in like everybody does, beat up, wounded, you know, no hope, and just knew that something had to fucking change. And I go to the rehab, do the six months, do the deal, and I'm like, I'm ready to go back home. Let me get the fuck out of Costa. I'm going home. I'm going to Tampa. I had drugs waiting for me at once as soon as I got off the plane. Oh. Exactly. Oh. You were in rehab for six months? Six months. And and you you were already planning to get high? Yeah, that's how... What, what the fuck were they teaching you in rehab? It wasn't necessarily... Now, I don't think it was necessarily them. It's that I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to, like, all, everything they were telling me. So you got to be a hardcore fucking drug addict. It, it didn't stick after six months. No, it didn't stick. I mean, a lot of it did stick, though. A lot of it woke up the good Sophie, woke okay. up the wanting to try, woke up the, you know what, actually, there is a chance, there is a hope, but there was also that little devil side in me that, I mean, you got to think of it this way. All I knew was drugs. I had just spent the most, you know, all I knew was how to get high. So I go home, I get high. Then the next day, after two days back to Tampa, 
I'm already in the back of a cop car. (laughs) 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 Fucking priceless. I love it. (laughs) I'm already in the back of a cop. Am I taking too long with my story? (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. You have all the time in the world. You go, girl. I'm in the back of a cop car because I decided to go to my old dealer that I had from six months previous. And he's been looked, he's been watched by the cops. They find drugs on me. Again, this is one of those other higher power things that came out. I literally, well, the cops in the neighborhood kind of knew me, though, already previous. Shocker. (laughs) You know, they did notice I had spent some time away, you know, and I told them, I mean, I was in tears. I was crying. You know, I'm like, this is a mistake. I, I would say that that was my moment at that moment after spending the six months in rehab learning everything that I learned, feeling a little bit better to come home and to already be in the back of a cop car. Like that was like my moment where I'm like, dude, I fucking suck at this. (laughs) (laughs) Like I suck, you know, I suck and, and being an act or being, you know, doing drugs and living a life. That's actually not going to happen for me. Like, like, it's either one or the other. It's that simple. It's one or the other. So I, you know, my mom knew that I got high and I, I had been to a couple of NA meetings because the court ordered me to back when I got arrested, but I never really tried to do it. So I remember, I'm like, well, let me go to this Spanish meeting because I had spent six months in Costa Rica that I was like, well, let me go to a Spanish meeting. I'm used to those. I feel comfortable there. Well, I met this chick, uh, and she was this Puerto Rican chick who was crazy as fuck, but she was clean. You know, she was clean. And I, I don't know, for some reason, this girl said hello to me when I walked into a meeting. She actually picked me up the next day to go to a meeting. You know, because like I said, I had crazy girl look all over me. <laughs> you know, like I had crazy girl all over me, like the one where you're walking in the store and you grab your kid and you bring her close. Oh yeah. Because this chick looks crazy. Well, that was me. And so I started going to the Spanish meeting. You know, I started going to the Spanish meeting, and also I realized that you know what, man, I think I need to go back to Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 because I started having those issues, you know, of like when I was an adolescent feeling weird, you know, those weird feelings that I'm always, I, I, I work on still every day. But I, I stayed in Tampa about six months before I moved back. And I got, you know, I, I was going to meetings, doing great. You know, I was doing great. Like uh, compared to what was happening or what happened to me, I was doing great. Uh, one of the things, though, is that you got to be 100%. If you go into shit at, like, 60 or 70%, you're bound to relapse. Half measures. Exactly. Even though I had come such a long way, I guess sometimes when you have so, at least in my case, I felt that I had so many emotional issues that I needed to deal with that I wasn't. You know, I was one of those people like, oh, you know what? I just battled my life. I'm doing better now. Let me put that in the archives and I don't got to deal with that shit no more. As long as I'm not as crazy as I used to be, then I'm fine. 
but that's actually you're fucking yourself over. You're fucking yourself up because after being clean for, I was clean six months, relapsed, then I got clean another six months, and then I relapsed again. And this time it was, I no longer did pills anymore. I, I definitely quit the pills. Um, I actually haven't touched a pill in like almost four years now, but my relapse was on cocaine. That crazy friend that I never dealt with that I did, I stopped using because I started the pills, but it was just one for the other. It's just also self-discovery. Sometimes finding yourself in my particular case, you know, was very hard. And I didn't, I don't, I have a family that, that could help me, but they don't understand the addict part. They just look at me as like their crazy child. And, and once I quit doing a little bit of drugs, they were like, oh, she's so much better. She's this, she's that. I'm like, wait a minute, slow down. I'm still fucked up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still fucked up, you know, like, like, I, and I'll tell you what, the meetings to me, the rehab was great and stuff. I, I had, I have a very good friend in Tampa, man. He's got like, he's, I think, going now on like 28 years clean. You know, funny story is that he was my neighbor when in my house. You know, another higher power moment. He's like, yep, I've seen your fucking crazy ass all the time. But I, <laughs> I've seen you all the time, but I, I knew you weren't ready to give it up. You know, I'm not going to waste my precious time. It's true. You know, and that's something else, you know, that, that, they, that they, my sponsor, when I was in Tampa, she made me call her every day for 30 days before she accepted. Every day for 30 days before she accepted me to be her sponsee. And I guess I could say that y you learn how you got to be part of them too. Like I said, I was so tired. I was so beat up. I'm in a room around people who are speaking shit that I know. Like I said, I got this crazy Puerto Rican chick talking about her crazy stuff. And I felt identified with her and she was clean, you know? And I think that's the stuff that helps me is when I see people that are whacked out of their minds, but yet they're clean. So technically, you can't really judge them no more. Like, if you can be crazy and still be sober, that's what I want. Because I know I'm never going to be a normal person. I don't want to try to be a normal person. I want to try to be the best person I can be. But I need legitimate examples. You can't have Laura Ingalls over here trying to give me an example. <laughs> because that shit ain't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that's where the meetings help. I needless to say, like I said, a couple relapses, this and that, but I'm happy to say that I'll be two years finally in December after the long road that it's, and for, for me it's a long road, but man, I know some people, and they've had it pretty rough, so I have to be grateful, which is another thing I'm, you know, I've, I've learned to be clean. You know, I actually, I have a job now. I mean, I have a job. I, I, that's why I said I take a shower every day. I started with that because you forget those things. You know, I remember learning to shower, to eat, to, to have hygiene, to feed. I mean, just normal stuff I didn't do anymore. And I didn't realize that I lost all that until I started to do it again, until I started becoming normal. Okay, I moved finally. I guess I spent those six months in Tampa. I moved back to Costa Rica. And I remember the girls at my meeting in Tampa, they were like, as soon as you get to Costa Rica, you go find a meeting. You find a meeting. 
you go to a meeting and you get connected right away because that's how you do it. And and I did. I, I after being in Costa Rica, I think it was like four days. I I went to the to the to the English meeting, which was scary as shit for me because I went and took two buses. You know, and when you're used to a big city and then you move to Costa Rica, you are a little bit in culture shock. Not too much because my family's from here. But I took two buses because I felt like, you know what, like they used to say, you'll go through a hurricane to get your drugs. You better, Hell yeah. You better go, you know, find a, a meeting. You want an English meeting? Then you go to it. And I did. And then I met a girl as soon as I walked in there in the meeting. Her name was Andrea. And I meet her. And she hugged me right away. And she actually ended up living next in my neighborhood near me. So we were... I had somebody to take the bus back with me. I met her and like she linked me up with the other girls in the meeting and it's just been self-revelation ever since. I could make it to more meetings than I should, but I consistently try to go to the women's meeting. The women's meeting personally, my story, the women's meeting has helped me tremendously getting to have girlfriends again and being around girls and telling our girls stories. It's a lot of fun. I actually now go to meetings and I have fun. It's the best. And I meet my sponsors at the women's meeting. I get to see the girls from the recovery center come and then they, when they're all batshit crazy, I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> oh girl, you got a long way. <laughs> You know, but that's when I can actually, it helps me. Like they always say, when you see a newcomer, it helps you because, you know, now that you know my story, whenever I see just a little bit of craziness in people, it actually scares the shit out of me because I know what I was capable of doing. I've been at my job now for three years. I've kept the same job with a little blip in the middle, but that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> no, but seriously, I kept my, the same job for three years. I don't call in sick. I do sometimes have a little tardy issue, which I know needs to work on, but I don't call in sick because I'm hungover or because, you know, all that other shit that, you know, we, we would miss work for. And that actually today makes me feel good to be responsible of stuff or to people... To look at you and think, wow, that chick's responsible. In my head, I'm like, oh my god, they think I'm responsible if they only fucking knew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the stuff I'm still getting used to now. Like I said, I don't have 10 years or 15 years. I can't give you one of those stories. But what I can say is that you got to fake it till you make it. Like they told me, fake it till you make it. If you see it, something that you want to do... Keep doing it. Keep trying. Pretend that you're that until you become that. Keep in mind we're talking positive stuff. You know what I mean? And Absolutely. I'm, I'm talking about positive stuff. I mean, if it wasn't for the meetings and the people in the meetings making me feel comfortable, being sick and tired of the life I had before, I don't know if I could be here to tell my story. Definitely a higher power that has come in and said, you know what, you're destined for something better. You work out your issues. I had a great, uh, I had a psychiatrist for a little bit, but I, I really didn't want to take, when I was in the rehab and stuff, 
they still had me a little medicated with all kinds of stuff. But I didn't want to do that anymore. Stop taking the sleeping pills. I got off antidepressants. I did that for, for a little bit, getting off these drugs. I mean, that's one thing. You know, you do so much to get into the addiction. It's about that much energy you have to put, really, I feel, to get out. No question about it. So pretty much, in the nutshell, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing story. I mean, seriously. I've heard a lot of stories. You know, uh, I've been coming around, a, you know, a couple 24 hours, and they never cease to amaze me. They're always so powerful, and they're always so unique, even though... We all have the same, we all end up in the same place. It all took us different roads to get here, you know, and different experiences. It was powerful, and, and I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us because it was awesome. I'm glad you were here. So for the newcomer, I'm going to ask you four questions about your early recovery, and you're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. All right, so what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown, like... Uh, life in general was very yeah. scary because I didn't know what normal life was. Now, when you got a whole bunch of people being nice to you, it, it's kind of scary at first, too. Like, what's, going, what's all these people being nice to me for? <laughs> the hell they want to help me for? I don't know them. I'm crazy, don't you know? <laughs> Oh, I forget about that. You're right. Yeah. You're right. That's true. That's true. And plus you see people and you're like, there's no way in hell. I, you know, I can, I can be as chipper as they are, you know. <laughs> chipper. <laughs> their, their story is bullshit. I don't believe their fucking story. <laughs> Fair enough. But it does. Fair happen. enough. It is, I'm, I believe it now. <laughs> the next question is, at one point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol and for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I think for me is also, again, in a meeting like always, um, in a woman's meeting, when you hear a story and that person makes you cry, it made me cry. I heard a girl talk about how she just wanted everybody to leave her alone and she just wanted to get high. And she's in tears at this point. And I so identified with her at that moment, but I'm clean now. And I don't, and I remember that feeling, but I also remember that that was an old feeling. That was not a current one. So at that moment, I realized in that meeting that I had to keep going with this because I looked at her and I was like, she's miserable. I don't want to be miserable anymore. This is the path. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I just got to keep going in this direction. Perfect. What is the best suggestion you have ever received? Two, actually. It's Meeting Makers Make It that was embedded in my brain. Yep. And also, stay in the middle of the boat. Oh, I love that one. Stay in the middle of the boat. That guy I told you with all those years clean, his name is Bruce, but... He told me, stay in the middle of the boat, Sophie. If you surround yourself with people that actually want this, you're good. And that's actually, if I could, you know, recommend to somebody new, is when you go to meetings, when you do this, and when you do that, I, I, I'm, I don't go to meetings to be that popular person and that high school shit. That fucked me up to begin with, like I said earlier. I went to the meetings and I met these girls 
that actually had clean time, you know, like real, in my mind, you know, clean time, more than 60 days. <laughs> and I stuck around them and I would go to lunch with them or go to dinner or call them on the phone. And now they're my friends. And we, I feel like we have a unit and a bond and it's strong. I think if you go into the meeting and you surround yourself with a lot of newcomers or a lot of people that just want to be cool, then it could be a bad thing for you. And it doesn't have to be. It could be great. You just got to stay in the middle of the boat, you know, around people that are going to be there to help you in case you fall out of the boat. You know, hopefully you don't, but, but that's the best thing is you got to stay in the middle of the boat. Excellent. Well, that was my next question, was if you could impart only one suggestion to a newcomer, what would it be? And it sounds like it would be stay in the middle of the boat. Exactly. You know, when you're a newcomer, go to the meeting, take it. You're, if you're at a fucking meeting, it's because you need help. You don't just go for fun. So if you're a newcomer, take advantage of it and just meet some solid people that have, that might tell you stuff that you don't want to hear, but that's the shit that you need to hear. You're not going there to make friends. You're going to save your life. 100%. Great suggestion, Sophie. Again, thank you so much for giving back, being of service, and most of all for sharing your experience, strength, and hope for the newcomer. And again, thanks for having me. And before we say goodbye, I have one more question for you. Of all the meetings you have attended anywhere in the world, which group is your favorite and where is that group located? Well, of course, my home group is in uh, Costa Rica. It's the Vigilance Group in Savannah. Uh, it saved my life. Excellent. All right, we've reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say in Costa Rica, pura vida. Pura vida, oh. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then.